Uh, the carpet's throwing everybody off. The, any, any new, any, any got new first time in big room service? This is your, there you go. They got a few back in here. Thank you guys for being here. This is our promotion Sunday. So we've got some new ones. Welcome. Good to have you guys here. We're glad you're here. Um, yep. Excellent. Hey, um, uh, so I don't remember under what circumstances any church would ever have considered doing this, but... Um, when I was at some point in children's church at New Hope Congregational Methodist Church a long, long, long time ago, um, for some reason they invited some of the children to get up and express our appreciation for children's church in the big church room. Now again, why, how anyone thought that was a good idea is beyond me, um, but then second to let me get on mic at that age is also should have been an easily avoidable mistake. The... Um, uh, so they put me on mic and said, Chris, what is it that, uh, that you appreciate so much about Children's Church? And I said, because I don't have to listen to the boring sermon on Sunday morning. <clears throat> and uh, apparently that was a surprise to everybody. I thought everyone knew that, uh, that, that like that was the whole purpose of Children's Church was to, um, uh, if, you were a, if you were a child, you too could have avoided the torture, but bummer for you, you're stuck. So... Uh, so to tell you, young people, uh, especially those of you who are new, hopefully it, it's not that bad. Um, it should be pretty good. This is, it is fun to be in here together um, as David invited us to come and magnify the Lord uh, with me. And so it's exciting to, uh, to have you guys, uh, especially the first timers here. Um, if, you, if you have a hard time staying focused ever during the sermon, one, make sure you're taking notes. That's a great way to do that, whether you're kids or not. If you can't write, Yet, kids drawing a picture or coloring in the page that we have back there, that kind of thing, whatever it is, uh, all of those things, God can speak through all those different things. So I want to encourage you with that um, all the way through. So um, uh, this is uh, also, we've been in a friendship theme for a few weeks uh, as we've gone through 1 Samuel 19, 20, especially 18, 19, and 20, um, which is a big theme. And it'll come back. That theme will return um, as, we, as we continue to look at David's life. And you can even be praying as we're trying to decide right now, literally over the next few weeks, do we continue on into 2 Samuel, um, which I really would am tempted to do because um, it is, uh, in the Hebrew Scripture, it's one book. It's not two different books. In the Hebrew Scripture, it's one book. And so I would love to tell the story all the way through. But of course, then you'd have to go into Chronicles and Kings and all that kind of stuff to tell the whole story. And so um, we're just trying to discuss, do, do we do that? And we're asking God to lead us. Do we do that? Or do we move on to um, a New Testament uh, book to, to work our way through next. Whatever it is, we'll see. Um, I'm sure it will be, uh, God will have plenty to speak to us about. And, and, and 2 Samuel, the, the friendship theme becomes even more urgent um, and more of a crisis as we see the, the problems there. And we'll get there. We're not done yet. Um, but I do want you to know, as we're moving into the fall season, as Paul mentioned, um, with new life groups and that kind of stuff, I hope you'll look that up. If you're not involved, it's easy to hide um, in a room this size with this many people and to come week after week and really not ever get to know anybody. Um, and that's only, uh, if, you, if this is the full expression of your experience as the Christian life, you're missing, I don't know, nine-tenths, something like that. Um, and so we'd love to encourage you to get involved in a small group of some kind, a life group. Now, just so you'll know, even here, the purpose of the life groups, that's not the final step that we hope for you. We hope that you get into relationships with close, tight-knit friends, people who you organically then are hanging out with and doing stuff with and, and going on vacations with, and they become lifelong. I actually said in the first service, because I hadn't thought it through until I said it, that you could speak at each other's funerals. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way, uh, just so you'll know. Like, one of you could speak at the other one's funeral, maybe. Uh, but the... Uh, um, 
so that you, could, you, would, you would have those type of friendships to connect together, to raise your families together, to invest in your grandkids together. And uh, those are vital in the, Christian, in the Christian walk. We need those. Um, I think that's a vital part of what God has called us to. Um, God is sufficient for all the things we really need. Oh, there you go. Look at that. Um, for all the things we really need fundamentally, eternally, but God seems to think it's pretty important that it's not good that man is alone and that we have those relationships. When Jesus sent out his followers, he sent them out in twos for a reason. Um, I think that's vital. So I really want to encourage everybody as we are continuing to do that. And Bob, uh, Dr. Bob and Kevin both did a great job of unpacking some of those for us as well. So if you're not involved, I'd love to encourage you to do so. And hopefully in those life groups, you will make some of those lifelong friends. Um, and that's what we hope and pray for you. All right, so as we're diving into 1 Samuel 21, if you remember during Advent, we looked at some of the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And so furniture is kind of a strange word, but that's kind of what it goes for. We looked at those, and God takes those things very seriously. Keep in mind, God recognizes that as a holy God living in the midst of a fallen people, that is super dangerous for those people. Um, holiness is lethal for a fallen race like us. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Um, he is a consuming fire. And so to recognize that, that, that His holiness, His presence in our midst would be like if we were bacteria and there's a big old cup of bleach uh, set in the middle, we wouldn't want to be messing around with that cup of bleach. If it, if it spills out, it can destroy, and God's holiness can be lethal um, to us. And so we always need um, a, a person who, a go-between between us and His holiness. Of course, as Christians, we have Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit that is that propitiation, that is that holy maker for us so that we can engage with an almighty God directly, which is which is amazing. But in, the time, in that time, this God loves these people, but His presence is like nuclear material for them. And so He wants to set up these laws, these guidelines, these rules that are meant to keep them safe in His presence because He loves them. He, he desires to be with them. He is their father. He is their, they are like a bride to Him. It's all, all these imagery, all this imagery that's so powerful. His, 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 his love and mercy upon them. But you also see, if you read through those passages, when they offend His holiness, it is His instinct to wipe them out and start over. That is His holiness in action. And so, um, so He gives them these guidelines to keep the people safe and to keep them in communion with Him in which they experience the advantages of His holiness and love. See, if you're just worshiping an idol, just a dead piece of wood or a dead piece of metal... And you're, you're worshiping that thing. If that thing, while you're moving it around your house, the other, it's a piece of wood, and the other half of the wood you cut up into firewood and cook stew with it, as Isaiah says. And then you take half of it and you make it into an idol. If it starts to tip over, and you reach out and put your hand on it to keep it from falling, ain't nobody going to care. But when you're talking about a holy God whose holiness lashes out against our unrighteousness, and his Ark of Covenant begins to tip over, and without permission, you put your hand out even to stabilize it, you can be struck dead. It's that serious. The, the, the issues of living in the presence of a holy God are that serious. So we saw these different pictures in God's tent, what is called the tabernacle. That's just God's personal tent in Shiloh. Included in God's tent were several other symbols, the incense, uh, which Paul taught during Advent, um, the altar, the menorah, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, um, and one more. Um, it is the table of the showbread. I'm going to read from Leviticus 24, starting in verse 6. You shall set them, the, the bread that is, in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. 
This was the institution of donuts coming in a dozen, by the way. <laughs> and you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, and it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. Now, if you remember, I think we've got a picture, one of the pictures that we looked at. We looked at several different ideas, but this, this table covered in gold with the finery and the opulence, these massive loaves of bread, which were huge loaves of bread, and <clears throat> meant to show God's love and favor and his overwhelming blessings that he wants to bring to his people. Most of the things in the tabernacle are a representation of God's relationship to his people. Come and eat with me. Come and have a meal with me. Come and spend time at my table. That was the picture over and over again. But early in Samuel, we had seen that Shiloh had been destroyed. You can go visit it to this day and see the destruction um, the tabernacle had probably been wrapped up quickly because it was, after all, a mobile tent had been wrapped up and everyone had moved it. And no one knew where it had been moved from, except we're going to find out just in the few verses that it had been moved to Nob, um, which is a, a town in Israel. It was later to be described, Nob was later to be described as a city of priests. It has clearly replaced Shiloh as this kind of holy place. So that's where we are in 1 Samuel 21.1. So David has fled from Saul. He ran to Ramah to hang out a little bit with Samuel, and they get to all weird prophesying that goes on there. But we don't really know much about what happened between David and Samuel. David then goes back to try to re-engage with Saul, but finds out that Saul has gone truly mad, and, and now even is trying to kill his own son. So David, then we get to 21.1, then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? Now, everything about this is, again, we've talked before, there are, seen, there are passages in the Bible where as a good Hebrew audience is supposed to feel weird to us. And this is supposed to feel weird to us. David has gone to a priest. The priest is Ahimelech, a great-grandson of Eli. Already that's weird. Eli's family was not supposed to be priests anymore. And yet somehow this, this, this great-grandson of Eli is now a priest. Should that be the case? I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't speak directly to it. David is showing up there on his own. In a hurry, having left the presence of Saul. Remember, he was, he was literally, his, his wife had to trick his, her own father into letting David escape by putting an idol, which, why did she have one of those? But putting an idol in the bed and faking out Saul, and then David is able to leave. And here he's, he has run here, and he, and he has probably, you know, literally run literally the entire distance to get here. And, and Ahimelech is trembling at David's presence. Why? First, he asks why David is alone. Now, that's an intriguing question. The idea would imply that David usually travels with people. Um, where are David's men? Where are the people David usually travels with? Where are his armed guards? Um, he's maybe a, a new wife. Where is she? What's going on here, depending on the time uh, table here? Um, we'll see in a few chapters that David has come here before um, to seek wisdom and advice and guidance from the priest and from God here at God's tent in Nob. This reveals that something must be up. Ahimelech knows him well enough to know something's wrong. Something's going on here. So he's just showing up and it creeps Ahimelech out. I think, I think we have to be careful in, a, in, in understanding this, that once again, this is, this is David. We want to picture the cute little shepherd boy who took down the giant. That is no longer the case. That's not David anymore. We're going to see he has a beard 
uh, in a minute. This is not a little boy. And so David has grown up, and David is a stone-cold killer. This is what David is famous for, is being a killer. Um, and so he's killed thousands, tens of thousands, is the, at least is the song that's being sung. And so this stone-cold killer comes running to Nob, runs straight up to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech's like, what's, what's the story here? What's going on? I think it's worth commenting right now to recognize David is a dangerous man. Um, that doesn't mean that that's evil. It's not evil to be dangerous. Those aren't the same things. In fact, let's take just one second and comment on this idea of toxic masculinity that often is, is taught um, in today's culture, that, being ma- that having masculine power by definition is toxic, and that's wrong. Having power or privilege um, in the Christian worldview makes you responsible. It doesn't make you evil. It makes you responsible. That's a different thing. It makes you, you are, you are now to use this whatever God has given you, this privilege, this wealth, this power, this whatever, in a way to bless others in his name. That's actually what that means. It doesn't make you evil. It just means that he is dangerous. Masculine power is dangerous. When submitted to God, masculine power is a great good when submitted to God. But men, when we submit merely to ourselves and our own agendas, we are incredibly destructive. We must never trust ourselves to wield this power God has given us unsubmitted to any agenda but his. David is a little bit of a loose cannon right now, and Ahimelech is picking this up. Something seems off, Ahimelech is troubled by it, his instincts are right. So David says to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I've charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. In other words, I'm on a secret mission from the king and I'm going to meet my men someplace other than here. This seems to be a flat lie. There's nothing truthful about this. David may or may not have some type of justification in lying. Maybe it's an ethical consideration. Is he trying to protect Ahimelech from this knowledge? I don't know. There's a debate even in Christian ethics all the time as to whether or not there's ever an appropriate time for a Christian to lie. Can you lie to the Nazis about the Jews you have hidden in your house? That's a debate that Christians can have and that they do have. This is a, it just just feels like fear or maybe manipulation. This is just something that that David's trying to get away with. It is interesting, as we'll see in a moment, a thousand years later, Jesus is going to reference the people with David. So even if not at this moment, there are going to be others who are blessed by this bread that we're going to see in a minute. But it doesn't seem like there's anyone with David right now. He's just lying. This is key because this is now becoming something of a habit for David. If you look back in 1 Samuel 20, verse 6, If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. This seems to be a lie. David coaches Jonathan to lie to Saul. And here's the problem with that. Habits are actions strung together. Kevin kind of referenced this. You string habits together and you create a character. And of course... Character, I agree with the concept that character to a certain degree is destiny. David's issues that he's going to face later when he breaks about eight of the Ten Commandments in a period of a few short months, David's issues will not come from nowhere. They will come from a habit he is developing of being dishonest, of being deceitful, and of getting away with it. 
Um, if there are ethically appropriate times to lie, if there are, I don't see how this is one of them. doesn't make any sense to me. I, in fact, we'll look at in a, min, in, in a minute, we're going to discuss the question, what if David had come honestly to Ahimelech? What might have been avoided if he had just come to his friend and his priest, Ahimelech, and said, here's what's going on. You can help me out. Also, there's a habit that some people have of, of looking at a passage like this and saying, I can't believe the Bible approves of this. Don't assume that. The Bible reports things that it doesn't approve of all the time, even about our heroes. In fact, especially about our heroes. There's nothing to indicate the Bible approves of David's behavior here. Okay, so David lies about having a bunch of men with him and that he's on a mission from the king. He's clearly not on a mission from the king. He's fleeing from the king. Verse 3, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Uh, commentaries uh, try to guess on why he starts with five loaves. There are 12, um, if, if that's what he's thinking about. We don't know what he's thinking about. Maybe he just likes the number five, or maybe he just likes lots of bread. We, we really just don't know. Um, I, always, I crack up always in my own head as a, as a psychologist because maybe five is just David's number. Um, how many of you have a favorite number? So you got, you got a favorite? How many of you, it's like enough of a favorite number that if you can choose, you choose that number? Like if you can avoid choosing a different number, you choose that, anybody? How many of you have least favorite numbers, numbers that you actually avoid? I know this makes you look weirder, so you're like, I don't know if I want to say that one or not, but it's a, most of us do. Most of us have certain numbers. For example, we all know that odd numbers are more evil than even numbers, right? We all have that instinct inside of us. We just know that they are, there's something wrong there. However, by the way, if you ask Americans what their favorite number is, if you just say, what is your favorite number? About half will do a list, a number between one and 10, and the favorite one is? Seven. Yeah, exactly. Which we all know is wrong because it's odd. It's an odd number. That's not, that's not an appropriate number. By the way, anybody know what number, what the second one is? Three. Three. Three is another one. Another odd one. I just, something's wrong with the human race. Everyone knows that 16 is the best number. All right. So <laughs> here we go. And I'm a therapist, so that makes it right. Um, okay. So here we go. David is now going to run around over the next few years of his life seemingly just bouncing from place to place. Sometimes there is a guidance from God, but sometimes there isn't. And here early on, I really do think we see David in panic mode. David is not thinking right. He's not doing well. So he's up here, up in Gibeah, and serving Saul up in Gibeah, way up here. He's going to flee to Samuel first. He's going to go up north. Then he's going to run down to Nob. And then he's going to run over to Gath, way over here. And then he's going to run, I think next is Moab. I may be missing one in between there. Uh, oh, then caves. So from Gath, he's going to go to the caves at Adullam. Then he's going to go to Moab. Um, then he's going to go to the forest of Herath. Um, and then by chapter 23, he's going to be in Keilah. And then he's going to go down to the stronghold near the Dead Sea. So again, he is all over the place. Starting up here, going down, heading to Nob, heading over to Gath, then heading to Adullam, then heading all the way to Moab, and then coming back up to Keilah, and then going down and hiding in Masada. This is, this is a man on the run, and he's running all over his own country from his own king. He's on the run, and he's going to be all over the place. I want you to have that in mind as we consider what we're facing. Verse 6, back in Nob. So the priest, Ahimelech, answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? Again, 
all of this is fiction. There are no men who are, whose vessels are holy under this consideration. Now, it isn't probably at all a lie that typically David keeps his men from engaging in any type of sexual interaction with women um, while, they're on their, while they're on their journeys, because that is Hebrew law. The Hebrew law is that, that the type of pillaging that we, not only did we see 3,000 years ago in the Bronze Era, but we still see today going on in Ukraine, that type of horrific mistreatment and abuse of women and children that we still see today because the human race, it turns out, is still fallen. Um, the fact that we see that, but understand in Hebrew law, that was strictly, strictly forbidden. That was not allowed at all. Um, you'll remember, if we get there, if we do um, do the second uh, Samuel, you'll see um, for example, that Uriah, who's one of David's men, will not sleep with his own wife while the rest of the men are on expedition. That's how seriously they took this law. So this is what's going on. There's something going on. Eventually, maybe, apparently, he's got some men that are going to appreciate the bread, as we'll see when we see Jesus' reference to this passage. However, he seems to be being honest in principle while still being dishonest about what's going on. Verse 6, so... Under the idea of a lie, the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. This should not be acceptable. This should be completely unacceptable. We talked about how sacred these, these symbols are. Others had done this type of thing and less and had died for it. So what's going on here? Why, is, why does God allow Ahimelech to give this bread to David. Well, there seems to be a purity aspect to it. Something's going on there because he asks about, are they ritually still clean? Are the men ritually clean? Because apparently that plays something, at least in Ahimelech's mind. I don't know if Ahimelech knows how to make this call or not, but that's what, he's, that's what he references. Is he just afraid of David? Afraid of David's men? And the easiest way to get David to go away is to give him some of this bread? I don't know. Um, is this because, and I wonder at this, David is God's anointed. And maybe Ahimelech knows that. And that God, David being anointed makes him something like a priest as well as king. Maybe that makes it okay for him to have it. Here's what's interesting. It is important to remember it's God's bread. It is his right to give it as he sees fit. When unpacking this passage, um, Alistair Begg uh, references the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer, but it's the Lord's Prayer when he says, give us this day our daily bread. And Alistair Begg asks, do any of us deserve our daily bread? <clears throat> do any of us, is it our righteousness that causes God to give us that bread? And the answer is no. None of us are worthy of God's blessings. The priests don't get the bread from the table because they're worthy. They get the bread from the table because God gives it to them. It's a gift that he gives. It is his right to give the bread to whom he wants. It's his bread. It's God's to give. God's rules like that don't apply to him. It's his. He is the Lord of the bread. Therefore, he can give it as he sees fit. Jesus seems to think, by the way, Alistair Begg says, um, if we got our bread based on our worthiness, we would all be skeletons. Jesus seems to think that this is an example of how even the most sacred laws can be abused when they're sometimes followed, especially that freak exception when it serves the highest purpose of the law. It serves the highest purpose of the law to actually 
break the law. Verses serve saving the highest purpose of the law by maintaining it. This would be really strange. It's really uncommon, but it seems to be the case. Jesus specifically references this passage as an example of that topic. Listen, Mark, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Listen to this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they, the disciples, made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, so they're breaking, according to the Pharisees, they're breaking the law. Now, this is not strictly scriptural. Yes, you're supposed to rest and not work on the Sabbath. But anytime you have that, you can imagine, as I've told you before, Ginger and I went a year trying to do Sabbath on Sundays. And so we're like, okay, so we need to not work on Sundays. And immediately the question was, what is work? And so we fought about that all year. What counts and what doesn't? What if you do something, what if you do something fun? If it's something fun, does that count as work? What if it would normally be work, but because it sounds fun, now it's not work? Or, or <laughs> what exactly applies? Hey, I'm going to the store. Um, can I go to the store? I've got a friend who's got a birthday party. I need to go to the store and buy uh, a birthday present for them. That's, there, there's nothing about work about that. I just want to go buy a gift for my friend. And while I'm there, I get milk. Oh, nope. Like... Does that count? I don't know if that counts. And there's no one to go to cast votes, like to go like, okay, Moses, what am I supposed to do? This is actually what happens with Moses. By the way, when God gives this commandment, and the, the first application is don't start a fire. And really, that's the only strictly biblical command about the Sabbath is don't start a fire. Okay? That's the only behavioral one. But then a guy shows up, they bring a guy before Moses who's been gathering wood. Hey, do, what do we do with this guy? He was gathering wood. And Moses is like, I don't how am I supposed to know, right? Moses doesn't know. So they go before God and they reach out to God. God, what do we do with this guy? And apparently the guy was gathering wood with the intention of building a fire. So God has him executed, which seems pretty harsh for gathering wood. And yet it's that important to God. This is a holiness uh, opportunity for him. God judges his heart, finds him guilty, has him executed for not obeying God. So this is what's going on. Now, the, the Pharisees had added all kinds of little rules, what you could do and what you couldn't do. And they had decided, not strangely, that harvesting was work. And not only was harvesting was work, but threshing, dividing out the seed, that's work. So the, 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 the disciples are breaking at least two of the Pharisaical applications of the Sabbath law. Don't work on the Sabbath. They're breaking this up, and then they're... Uh, and, and by even the fact that they're feeding themselves may be a third one, but there's debate on that. So here's, they, they come to Jesus and they go like, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath law right in front of you and right in front of us. What are you going to do about it? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? Just pause real quick. I love when Jesus tweaks them with this type of a statement. Listen, this is Jesus just picking on them. I guess you never read this path. That's what he's implying. Like, I guess you missed this part of the Bible. Like, these are Bible professors, every one of them. Of course, they've read this, but he, he, I think he likes doing that. I guess, have you ever read that David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. So apparently somebody's around at some point or going to be. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus declares himself to have the authority over the Sabbath. It's his grain. If he wants to let his disciples eat grain on the Sabbath, it's his grain. 
It's his bread in the, in the showbread table. If he wants David to have it, he can tell Ahimelech to give it to David, and that's okay. But it's also fascinating that he points out these law, this Sabbath law was meant to bless you. You're not supposed to worship the law. We don't, we don't worship the law. We worship the God who gave it. But plus, I love the idea that David has run to the tabernacle, and what happens is his shepherd then feeds him as he is running from his enemies. Just like the 23rd Psalm would imply. The priest makes the call and God doesn't strike anyone down. So I guess it was a good call. By the way, do you notice anything strange here in Jesus' telling of it, retelling of the event? Did I notice it? A different priest is named. Abiathar is named, not Ahimelech. You'll have to come back next week. I'll talk about that next week. So now we also need to cue the villain music um, in this story. We get to verse 6, and now we get verse 7, and we get this strange little uh, note here. How many, how many of you are familiar with the concept of Chekhov's gun? Do we have any writers in the room that know the concept of Chekhov's gun? Okay, so Chekhov's gun, a 19th century Russian writer, said that if, as a writer, if you introduce a gun early in the story, you have to pay off that gun later. That gun has to do something important in the story later. It should be called the Doeg rule, as you're about to see in a second. So the camera pans over, in our, in our picture, in our mind, David is there, the camera pans over. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. I don't know what that means. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So as the camera pans, we'll get this picture. See him in the corner back there? Uh-huh, he's the bad guy. You can tell he just looks like a bad guy, Right? Doeg's back there like, what's going on here? Something fishy is going on here. Now, as a Star Wars fanatic, um, uh, I immediately thought of Gurindan. None of y'all know who that is, so I'll show you. It's this guy, the long-nosed dude. He, he, but it's really hard to... It's a dark scene anyway. So there's our heroes walking by, minding their own business. Oh, but there he is. There's Doeg the Edomite. He's right on their tail. They're going to walk by, and there he is again. He's going to show back up. He seems unimportant, but now he's going to speak. Yeah, that's not what you're expecting to sound him to sound like. And guess who shows up? The bad guys show up. This is, this is Doeg, but at the moment, these are, these are two very different scenes in the movie. At the moment, this is just the first one. Doeg's there. He sees what's going on. Pay no attention. Don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. Down to verse 8. Then David, it'll pay off later. Don't worry. Then, Ahimelech, then David said to Ahimelech, then have you here, not here a spear or a sword at hand, for I have brought neither my sword nor weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Uh-huh, the lies are starting to pile on each other, aren't they? Oh, by the way, I was in such a big hurry trying to obey Saul that I accidentally left my sword and spears behind. Do you happen to have a sword here? Now, I actually am of the opinion that David knows there's a sword here. Uh, I, will, I just can't accept that David is unaware of where Goliath's sword is kept of where it's stored. That seems very unlikely to me. Some, one author even thinks that the whole bread thing is a ruse, that David is here for the sword. And that's why David has come, is he wants, he wants Goliath's sword. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, which may mean behind the Ark of the Covenant, which would not really be an appropriate place to store this. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there's none like that anywhere. There's none like that. Give it to me. 
There are whole sermons about that phrase, there is none like that. As a sword guy, it makes me wonder at it. What was so special? Maybe just the massive size of the sword is what makes it special. So he keeps it. He straps on Goliath's sword. And then in one of the strangest moves in all of history, in verse 10, and David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So he goes to Gath. And some of you are already putting those pieces together. This seems like a strange move on David's part. He goes to Melech Achish. Melech, which means the title for king, for the Philistine king was Abimelech, meaning the son of the king. So, so the son of the king, Achish, meaning he is now king, um, is the king of Gath. Gath is where Goliath is from. So in a bold move, Cotton, David has grabbed Goliath's sword and then taken it to Goliath's hometown apparently in some effort to disguise himself. I don't know what he was thinking. The last place anyone would look for me was probably what he was thinking. Why? Because it would be really, really dumb for me to go there. Well, yep, it, it was. Um, so he goes to Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword. He shows up and he's older. He's grown out his beard. We're going to see his own country is after him. Maybe he can hide among his enemies. We don't really know what he's thinking here. Maybe he can hide here that Achish, it seems that Achish at first does not recognize him. And I want to share with you guys what I think is going on. Here's what I think, because I think there's a much longer story here. I think, and I'll show you why I think this, I think David went and hid there in Gath at first, presented himself before the king, and the king actually, Achish, did not recognize him at first. He's an older man. He's probably roughed up. Um, uh, whatever's going on, I think Achish probably did not. Achish just is not paying attention, whatever. And so Achish does not actually not recognize him. And maybe Achish gives him, like hires him on as a mercenary or something like that. But at some point in this process, something happens. And that's verse 11. The servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Look at that title the Philistines have given to David. The king of the land. That's not an official title. This is, everyone's terrified of him. He rules with his power. Is this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands? I think what happens here is that as soon as Achish realizes that, that, that this is David, the David, and he's in his city, I think Achish has him gathered up, grabbed, and probably thrown in a cell. I think that's probably what happens. Look at, the, look at in Psalm 56. If you jump over with me to Psalm 56, here's the note for Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, that's the tune you're supposed to sing this song to, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. I think probably this, the whole story is that David pulled off his deception for a short time. Some of Achish's servants spotted him, figured out who he was. Achish captures him and throws him in a cell. David is now distraught, stuck in this cell, and is writing in his head this prayer that he then later writes down. I don't think he had pen and paper, probably in the cell, but later he writes this down. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. 
For their crime will they escape, and wrath cast down these peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This is a despairing prayer. This is not a happy little psalm. This is a despairing, this is a man who is despairing. His enemies surround him, they're watching his every move. I think this is what he was experiencing while he was in Gath. At some point, apparently the king of Gath drags him out um, and questions him or whatever. And David, who has been raving in his cell, faking being insane in his cell, he is banging on the doors, leaving marks, scraping up his cell maybe. Verse 12, and David took these words to heart that he, when, he, when he, they recognized him and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. I told you he'd grown his beard out. Then we get this great scene. You can imagine them dragging this raving man before Achish, who everyone used to be afraid of, and now he's nuts. He's lost it. He's totally mad. And Achish in this one of this great movie moment, like this is just exactly like the, the bad leader bad guy would behave in this scene. He gets dragged up before Achish, and Achish turns to his servants who are standing around, his soldiers you can imagine, and says, you see that the man's mad. Listen, you can see that he's crazy. Why have you brought him to me? Why would you bring a madman to me? Look at this great, this great phrase. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Aren't enough of you people crazy already? Listen, I've got enough crazy. Plenty of crazy. What I would love to have is information from a follower of Saul, not a guy dribbling on his beard while I'm hanging out. I got plenty of you guys who dribble on your beards all the time. What I need is something different than this. Why have you brought me another madman? Get him out of here. Shall this fellow come into my house? This is what stands out to me about this passage. Understanding it, I always want to unpack it so you experience it and see what's going on here. Here's what stands out to me, though. David sort of sought out Samuel in the last chapters. We don't really see what goes on there. At some point, he kind of sought out Jonathan as well. But what I don't see David doing until he's in Gath, maybe, is seeking out God. I don't, maybe he was. Maybe I'm being unkind. Maybe when he goes to Ahimelech at the tabernacle, that's what he thought he was doing. But what he did was go to, the, go to Ahimelech and lie. Could this have been very different if he had instead entrusted Ahimelech his friend? I love that God is patient with him as he stumbles through this mess, as David's oh-so-clever plans that he's got in mind, that he's going to go from place to place, this mess of him stumbling and running around. God is patient with him anyway. I love the picture of God being patient with us as we try to solve our own problems with one little solution after another. I love that we get the opportunity often to learn from our mistakes. But even better, I love the fact that in God, because of God's word, we can learn from other people's mistakes. We can learn from David's mistakes. And I think there are plenty here. Here's one. Be careful when you face challenges. When you face hardships, so often we just act and react. We lash out. We send out a quick text or a quick email. We go confront somebody before we've thought and prayed. We don't, we don't really think about what we're going to be doing. We try to solve one thing. We, we take out a different loan to pay off a different debt. And the next, next thing you know, the, 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 we, we tell a lie and the lies start piling up, etc. I think Psalm 56 was written later, but I think it was his thoughts from that time. So David has been running around like the proverbial chicken. Afterward, David is going to look back and see it. And he's going to write a different psalm. This is going to be a psalm of redemption. God taking the afflictions and the pain and the tears and the troubles in David's life and taking him through them. I think David recognized the troubles were sometimes self-created. And he wants to correct that. 
He wants to encourage us to stop, breathe, pray, listen. Here's another psalm from that era. It's the 34th psalm. Here's, in fact, what it says. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, remember that's a title for Achish, so that he drove him out and he went away. We need to be involving those friends who fit the traits that Dr. Bob referenced a few weeks ago and trust them. We need to trust in the Ahimelechs in our life. We need to trust in the Jonathans and in the Samuels. Who are the friends who God gives us who we can trust? In a minute, we're going to have a time of invitation as we do pretty much every Sunday. And we're going to, I'm going to invite you to come forward. If you've been through our welcome home process, you've talked to Lance and others, and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family um, who God is patient with as we run through life uh, struggling that's one. If you would like to come up and pray about anything, if you've put your faith in Christ or would like to and would like to talk to us about that, that'd be awesome. Whatever decision up here or in the corner, we'd love to, to pray with you. In part of that invitation, we're going to read the 34th Psalm together. This is not some pie in the sky prosperity talk. I don't want you to hear this Psalm this way. This Psalm is written, I presume, in the decade while, Paul, while David is fleeing, hiding, struggling. It's more than about circumstances, wealth, health, mental stability, or even feelings. In fact, David invites us to magnify the, and exalt God together, one of the greatest calls to worship in all of human history. But what I want you to listen to in the midst of this, as I read this, listen to David correct his own bad ideas as he encourages us to instead exalt in the Lord, not in our own ideas when we face similar circumstances. So if you will, stand with me. I'm going to read all of Psalm 34, and I will try to emphasize those passages in this that show David learning from his own mistakes and encouraging us to behave differently than he did under the same circumstances. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. <clears throat> my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. I sought the Lord. Did he? I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. They don't have spittle dribbling down their beards. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blesses the man who takes refuge in him rather than in Gath. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want hunger, as the Philistines. But those who seek the Lord lack no good. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The very words of God. Please listen as the Spirit speaks.